Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the journal Global Summetry. It's a pleasure to reintroduce to you today uh, Jake Sullivan. Jake was the youngest head of policy planning in the State Department under the Obama administration. During the 2016 U.S. presidential elections, Jake was Hillary Clinton's policy advisor on foreign policy matters. Currently, Jake is the Montgomery Fellow at uh, Dartmouth College, and he is also a um, non-resident senior fellow at uh, the Carnegie Endowment's Geoeconomics and Strategy Program. In addition, uh, Jake is also the co-chair, along with Ben Rhodes, who is also of the Obama administration, in an organization titled National Security Action. If you haven't had the opportunity, I would recommend uh, to you that you uh, give a listen to our prior podcast, episode 14, in Shaking the Global Order, um, American Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. There, Jake talked broadly about the direction and the future of American foreign policy. Today, I want to focus with Jake more directly on uh, the U.S. policy towards China and what appears to be a growing U.S.-China rivalry. Jake has uh, written a number of articles outlining what he sees as the direction for U.S.-China policy. So it's a real pleasure uh, to reintroduce Jake in this episode, episode 16 of the NOW uh, series uh, on uh, democratic foreign policy making and the U.S.-China rivalry. So it's my pleasure today uh, to introduce uh, Jake Sullivan uh, and to talk about uh, uh, foreign policy development, uh, possibly some democratic foreign policy development. And uh, while Jake has written on a wide uh, series of subjects with respect to future foreign policy, I think we'll tend to focus a little bit more on the uh, U.S.-China rivalry. So, uh, hello, Jake. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great. So I wanted to take you to uh, a piece, uh, an article that you did uh, with Kurt Campbell, a colleague of yours who also worked in the prior uh, Obama administration. Uh, This is a piece you wrote in Foreign Affairs in the summer called Competition Without Catastrophe, How America Can Both Challenge and Coexist with China. And in that piece uh, for Foreign Affairs, you, you guys wrote, Although China remains bitterly divided on most issues, Washington remains bitterly divided on most issues, there's a growing consensus that the era of engagement with China has come to an unceremonious close. The debate now is over, uh, over what comes next. And then you said, uh, you, most observers can agree that as the Trump administration's national security strategy put it in 2018, Strategic competition should animate the United States' approach to Beijing going forward. So I wanted to ask you a little bit. Of, so what are, you, what are you thinking of there, Jake? And what are you and Kurt thinking of at that point? Well, that's what basically the rest of the piece is about. Because mm-hmm. from our perspective, the word competition and strategic competition has gotten thrown around a lot across the political spectrum when it comes to the U.S.-China relationship. 
But as we say in the piece, it leaves open these really profound questions with respect to what we're competing over, uh, to what end, and what winning or losing looks like. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, what we argue in this piece is that the Cold War is a bad analogy and that we should not be aiming for some Cold War style grand conclusion to the competition where one side has decisive victory and the other side decisive defeat. Uh, but, but rather, we should have a more, uh, I'd say, prudent, practical and clear eyed approach that focuses not on the end state, but rather a steady state in which we manage competition and cooperation with China in an effective way. And we get into some detail about what that looks like in the security domain, the economic domain, the, the global governance domain, and in this increase in competition over values that uh, has been brought home, perhaps most poignantly with the uh, issues related to the NBA and China just in the oh, last yeah. few days. Okay, and, and we'll go to those. But I did want to raise with you what seems to be contention around exactly what the U.S.-China policy might be in the future. And I simply uh, you know, point to uh, an opinion piece that was written by a, a number of uh, China scholars. Uh, this was in, in earlier in the summer uh, in the Washington Post, and the piece was called uh, China is not an enemy. And the folks there were Michael Swain, Taylor Fravel, Jay Stapleton Roy, Susan Thornton, and Ezra Vogel, all of whom are in one way or another uh, China scholars. And a whole mess of former officials and scholars and so forth signed on to that particular uh, uh, letter. And it seemed to suggest, uh, you know, they, they were not prepared, I guess, to abandon uh, engagement and engagement policy as, the, as a premise for U.S.-China uh, policymaking. So, I, I, you know, what's your reaction to their view? Well, first, I would say that these are incredibly impressive people with a reservoir of knowledge about China and the U.S.-China relationship that runs uh, deep. Uh, these are patriots. These are people who believe um, in uh, America's foreign policy and national security and also believe in, you know, that they sort of serve to a certain extent as stewards of the relationship. So I have enormous respect for the primary authors and the signatories uh, of this letter. I would just point out mm -hmm. that even their effort to say, hold on, let's not make China an enemy – by the way, I agree with that sentiment. And, okay. and Kirk Campbell and I are arguing, let's not make China an enemy. That's the whole point of saying this is not a new Cold War and we should not think of the Cold War as the animating analogy. But even in their effort to do that, just look at point number one mm -hmm. in their op-ed. Uh, they, they enumerate a seven, set of points. Right, seven so propositions that they put forward. Point number one. China's troubling behavior in recent years, I'm quoting from their piece, mm -hmm. including its turn towards greater domestic repression, increased state control over firms, failure to live up to several of its trade commitments, greater efforts to control foreign opinion and more aggressive foreign policy raises serious challenges for the rest of the world. These challenges require a firm and effective U.S. response. And then they say, but they think where the current debate is, is unproductive. So I would say their starting point is that something has changed. They talk about these changes in recent years. 
and they say we need a policy to respond to these changes. But then what they do is they take issue with where the prevailing kind of narrative is of a much more adversarial relationship. And so basically what Kurt and I are arguing in our piece is everybody recognizes there's a challenge here that needs to be contended with. And it needs to be contended with with a new revised, updated American policy. But then there is a big debate, a major debate over what that policy should look like. And at one end, you have the folks on this open letter. At the other end, you have this group called the Committee for Present Danger China, who does want a new Cold War. Mm -hmm. And then you have a range of other opinions. So uh, I think even those uh, strong advocates for engagement over the past many decades are prepared at this point to acknowledge up front as their lead-in point that something has changed and therefore U.S. policy has to change as well. Okay. Uh, now, y you and Kurt then uh, go on to suggest, and, and you talked about it in part in um, a podcast uh, uh, more recently, Intelligence Matters, with Michael uh, Morell, who, of course, is the former acting director of the CIA, you guys suggest uh, we we have to. This is talking about U.S. foreign policy, obviously, to get the balance between cooperation and competition right. Washington has to consider the sequencing of each. That is cooperation and competition. The United States has historically sought to cooperate first, compete second with China. Beijing, meanwhile, has been quite comfortable competing first and cooperating second linking either explicitly or implicitly offers of cooperation, that is, cooperation from China to the U.S., to U.S. concessions in areas of strategic um, uh, or strategic interest. So maybe you can describe a little bit about what you're thinking of there. Is there a policy area you can point to where you say, sure. hey, this is the sequence we need to have, not the one we've had in the past? So two two major areas that I had direct experience with mm -hmm. in the Obama administration okay. uh, were trying to get sanctions uh, on Iran to uh, create the economic leverage to produce the Iran nuclear deal that would uh, resolve the nuclear proliferation challenge that Iran posed. And by the way, they posed that challenge to China just as they did to the United States. They posed it to the entire underlying system of the nuclear 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 non-proliferation treaty. Well, I mean, let me go to, you know, clearly what appears to be one of the really serious points of contention, uh, certainly in this current administration, the Trump administration, uh, this with respect to trade policy and in behind that, you know, questions of intellectual property protection, um, uh, questions of subsidies, um, you know, uh, theft potentially of technology, etc., which seems to, you know, underpin it. And you guys say, to this end, the United States should consider starting a rule-setting initiative of market democracies lay, layered over the WTO system, which would fill these gaps. The logic is straightforward. If China hopes to enjoy equal access to this new economic community, its own, its own economic and regulatory frameworks must meet the same standards. But I guess the question is this. I mean, you know, uh, if you've got uh, uh, major powers there, U.S. and China, um, 
it seems, I mean, at least at some level, difficult to comprehend that strategy in the face of, you know, if you're going to write the rules, don't you think China should be involved in the writing itself? Normally, major powers don't, you know, just say, okay, we're rule takers, not rule makers. Well, at one level, the, the answer to your question is, of course. Mm-hmm. And, and the whole thrust of the strategy is to make an approach to the Chinese that's not uh, extortionate or, or um, take it or leave it, but is rather um, quite straightforward uh, and, in my view, quite fair. And that is to say to them, uh, your economy has reached a size and has a throw weight that means that we can no longer permit the kinds of policies and strategies you've pursued to date. So we'd like to sit together to figure out how we build upon the WTO to solve for many of what we see as the continuing abuses that are emanating from Beijing. Mm -hmm. And so let's work together on that. Now, our efforts to do that over the past several years have been stymied by some combination of outright stonewalling and then a strategy of sort of saying yes, but then not really following through. And so the argument that we're making in the piece is in order to have an effective negotiation with China over the shape of the economic rules of the road of the 21st century, Mm -hmm. we need to bring leverage to the table. And that leverage, in my view, should come in the form of a common understanding and approach of the like-minded advanced economies of the world, including Europe, the United States, and Japan. Um, Those plus others combined for more than half the world's economy. Mm-hmm. And if we make a joint approach to the Chinese and say, here's the deal, we believe that a fair, effective, open international economy requires the following standards on issues ranging from currency to digital trade to state-owned enterprises, um, we're happy to talk to you about what your views are on that. But at the end of the day, we are going to demand reciprocity, fair play, and a level playing field. That is the best way to secure Chinese cooperation. Now, it may turn out they just say, no, we kind of like things the way they are because it's working for us, even if it's not entirely working for you. Well, in that (laughs) circumstance, we have to be um, prepared to say to them there will be some costs associated with going down that path. So Mm -hmm. I suppose to put a fine point on your question, which is should China be at the table and be part of the decision making process? They should. But there's responsibility and onus on them as well as on the United States. And what I think the last 20 years have shown us, uh, and even, you know, the writers of that letter we talked about in the first question, some of the things they cite are Chinese trade and economic abuses. They do. Are going to have to be be dealt with by the United States and its partners building up sufficient leverage to actually get China's attention. And I think that can only be done through some kind of – negotiation among the like-mindeds before we go uh, sit down with with China to have a reckoning over um, what the ultimate shape of rules in many of these areas are. Okay. And it's clear, I mean, it's it's difficult to envisage that at the moment because clearly you're not seeing a multilateral trade efforts uh, with this administration. Right. President Trump is not interested in a multilateral approach at all. Yeah, He believes in a purely bilateral approach, and I think he's leaving a lot of chips on the table and choosing to go that route. Okay, that's fair. But I do want to take you back to that whole multilateral framing, and in particular the WTO, because you guys 
uh, in the prior administration and administrations prior to that clearly were involved in the operation of the multilateral trade system and, and, and uh, rules, uh, rule structure in the WTO. And, and I, I raise with you then a podcast by, uh, this was in June, by uh, former USTR Charlene Barshevsky, who was very involved in actually negotiating uh, the China uh, accession. And she did a uh, this podcast with David Dollar in, in what he calls Dollar and Cents. It's a cute title. Um, and, and she raises what I think is a really serious uh, problem that a number of trade policy types have really uh, raised uh, as well. Which is that there were, there was real possibilities to bring multilateral effort, uh, and, and with complaints to the WTO over the last period. Now, it may well be that after China's immediate accession around 2001, you know, there was a policy, and I, uh, I suspect within the United States and also Europe, not to bring these immediate actions. But, you know, that was a long time ago. And uh, she partly says, uh, and looking at some of the various elements of the protocol of accession for China, and I won't, you know, get into the details, into the weeds, but at, at her conclusion is there were tremendous opportunities and there remain opportunities for enforcement, which the U.S. did not take. And when I, she says the U.S., I think she means the U.S. and others in the WTO, and instead the U.S. opted for a series of dialogues with China, you know, the strategic economic dialogue uh, and the others that were there. So, um, and rather than these dialogues being a forum for resolution of issues, such as the ones she mentions, they became talk fests and in a way in which China managed. So I take it that that's partly what you're, you're targeting, but it does suggest that at the end of the day, you know, the United States has to get its allies, in quotes, in the WTO uh, to actually, you know, act in a multilateral way. Well, first of all, uh, Charlene Barshevsky is a, is a much greater expert on <laughs> trade and in particular the WTO than I am. Yeah, um, me too. So, and, and I'm not going to pretend to be... Um, uh, an expert on trade enforcement actions within the context of the WTO dispute settlement uh, resolution mechanism. But I would point out two things. Number one, that uh, there have been instances where the U.S. has taken China to the WTO and even succeeded. And, mm -hmm. you know, that has done very little from the point of view of changing underlying structural behavior in China because the, what they have figured out is they can make sort of modest changes to these soft barriers and to strategies like forced technology transfer. They can tweak it and adjust it in ways that allow them essentially to continue the practice even after they've lost a given case on dumping or what have you. Um, so that's, that, that's just a basic challenge. And I think part of my argument around leverage is China has to feel that it is going to pay a greater cost than just one more defeat in the dispute settlement resolution mechanism mm -hmm. before I think it will more fundamentally change its behavior. But then there's a second more profound point, which is for a lot of the abuses, the modern day abuses, um, I think everyone would acknowledge, and I, I presume Charlene would too, that actually the WTO does not address them, particularly a set of issues around technology, 
set of issues around state-owned enterprises, a set of issues around currency, um, where what is actually needed is an update to or a reimagination of certain elements of the WTO. And one of those things might be a way for the WTO to get at these soft barriers so that um, that states that are just inclined to continue to try to uh, seek advantage can't make modest tweaks to their behavior and kind of keep doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of it is about substantive rules too. So I, I'm a strong advocate for us pursuing aggressive action through the WTO, but I think that that is a partial and not complete strategy. And although I had my qualms and quarrels with certain elements of TPP, a big part of the logic behind the Trans-Pacific Partnership was there are certain disciplines that the WTO does not cover Mm -hmm. that we need to start building in a plurilateral way on top of the WTO and have those pieces be open architecture so that if China wants to one day join them, uh, by all means. I think that logic still holds today, and I assume Charlene would agree with that. Yeah, fair enough. But And let me let me raise the, the TPP. Obviously, uh, this president and this administration, uh, almost in their first day in office, rejected the TPP. Um, and uh, nevertheless, uh, 11 of the 12 uh, members uh, you know, kind of filled in the gaps and, in fact, uh, brought it into existence so that you now have what's called a CPTPP, which is basically the TPP, which does a lot of updating. And even in the context of, you know, let's say the most recent uh, partial agreement between Japan and the United States, there was, um, it was evident that they were borrowing portions from from the CPTPP, particularly around subjects which had not been addressed earlier, things like uh, the digital economy, e-commerce, etc. So, I mean, would you uh, foresee or anticipate that democratic policy uh, making might well see the United States back in, uh, into something like the TPP um, uh, going forward? You know, it's really interesting. There's this funny cognitive dissonance in the Democratic race right now where all of the candidates criticize President Trump and his approach to the China trade issue by saying we should be working with our allies and partners. We should be writing the rules of the road. Uh, We should be having a joint approach. And then at the same time saying, but I don't really like TPP. So, uh, so I get that, honestly, that cognitive dissonance, because I sort of share it in a way. I, I, I have both advocated for a an approach with partners and allies and like-minded states, and I have raised concerns about TPP over the course of the past few years. Mm-hmm. So I think the answer lies in a plurilateral agreement, um, whether Asia-Pacific specific or potentially linking the Asia-Pacific and Europe together around issues like the one you just mentioned, digital trade. Um, and we just have to make sure that it has um, the right set of provisions, the right set of priorities, and the right process by which it comes into being. So I don't anticipate a Democratic president going directly into the CPTPP Mm-hmm. But I do anticipate a Democratic president starting a conversation about what some kind of plurilateral, excuse me, plurilateral <laughs> arrangement could look like. 
Um, and that will be a very interesting navigation of politics and substance. Uh, and it, it is worth continuing to pose the question you just did in the early months of the Democratic administration, if in fact we have one in 2021. Okay. Uh, one, just one further note. I mean, so you foresee some kind of agreement, but not necessarily the current one. But the it's very odd to me because uh, clearly this agreement was negotiated by a Democratic administration, uh, notwithstanding that the candidate in 2016, in fact, said she opposed the TPP. So I'm trying to understand what is it about the TPP, notwithstanding it was negotiated by a Democratic administration that you and others seem to have some hesitancy around? I think there's a few pieces to it. Um, I mean, number one, time has passed. Sure. So, sure. Uh, you know, the, the nature of the issues and uh, the scope and substance require a refresher. But then number two, there were particular provisions in, in it that uh, caused concern for Secretary Clinton. A couple that she identified in particular were the ISDS provision right. um, and the and the, the rules of origin issue uh, with respect to autos in particular that uh, seemed to create some substantial loopholes that could put U.S. car manufacturers at, at uh, a disadvantage. And there was others, uh, too. But basically, the underlying case that she was making was, um, this is right in theory, but let's get the right agreement. Let's look at the particulars of the provisions and make sure that they reflect our priorities and principles. And that's essentially the attitude that whoever the next Democratic president is going to take. The question of how much they are going to prioritize this and push this mm -hmm. as opposed to just not really wanting to touch the politics of it, that is, that's probably depends on who our nominee ends up being. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so, so, you know, clearly I wanted to ask two additional kind of features. One of the aspects that you focused on, you and Kurt, focused on. Um, uh, on the competition with China, you say the most decisive factor in the e economic competition with China is, in fact, U.S. domestic policy. The notion of a new Sp Sputnik moment, one that galvanizes public research um, uh, as powerfully as seeing the Soviet Union launch the world's first satellite did, may be overstating the point, but the government does have a role to play in advancing American economic and, and tech, technological leadership. Look, neither you nor I have any crystal ball about um, uh, a democratic win, whether it's uh, in 2020 or subsequent. But, but you know, it, it, it would seem unlikely, at least in the immediate circumstance, that you're likely to get both Congress and uh, a democratic uh, president. And we've seen the dilemma of trying to get policymaking done in Washington. Uh, everybody has talked about infrastructure. I mean, this is not news, but, you know, where is it? You don't see it. So, you know, what, what, how do you move the yardstick on something as dramatic uh, than as, as, as a Sputnik moment? Well, first of all, I think the conversation and context around China actually will contribute to mm -hmm. uh, getting the Republican votes necessary on both a major investment in research and development and a major investment in infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, so you have Marco Rubio, Republican senator from Florida, out there talking about industrial policy 
and other Republicans similarly describing the need for major investments in our own sources of national strength. So that's, that's one point. Second point is, I actually think whoever the Democratic nominee is, this set of investments is going to be at or near the very top of their agenda when they come in Mm -hmm. and may be the one place that they can actually break through the partisan logjam in the Senate Um, because uh, I don't think that you're going to have a circumstance in which, um, you know, if there, let's say there's a Republican Senate and a Democratic House in which right. the Republican Senate is going to say yes to some of the some of the other more politically contentious issues. But they're going to want to, in my view, put some points on the board of some kind, particularly in a softening economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Republicans aren't going to want to be in a position where they're just saying no to everything at a moment when Americans are looking for an economic boost. So I actually believe that the circumstances will align if a Democrat is president in 2021 for a package, a major significant package of investments around these sources of competitiveness um, and that we will have that political context will be different then than it was in the years in the later years in the Obama administration when the infrastructure was stalled. Okay. Okay. All right, let me, you know, in, 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 fine, in the final of your piece, you talk about, you know, the hotspots, and you particularly focus in terms of the U.S.-China competition uh, on um, Asia-Pacific, right? Uh, and uh, uh, you're, you say Washington fears that China is trying to push U.S. forces out of the Western Pacific, and Beijing fears that the United States is trying to uh, ham it in. So I guess the the question is in two parts. One, um, in a post-Trump world, how does the U.S. revitalize its alliances, and I'm thinking most specifically about Asia Pacific, without raising China fears that containment is the objective? Because, you know, very quickly China raises that issue whenever uh, initiatives uh, emerge from the United States in the Asia-Pacific? Well, I mean, the argument that we make in the piece is that the U.S. and China are going to have to have a more sustained dialogue around uh, how both countries will be operating in the Western Pacific and how we have to be able to make that element of coexistence work. Mm -hmm. And I think the U.S. being more willing to acknowledge that it is not pursuing a strategy of overmatch or dominance or um, uh, uh, preponderance of power in the Western Pacific, but rather is just pursuing a strategy of deterrence, deterrence without dominance, as as Bridge Colby, who was a a Trump administration DOD official, put it, um, that if we come to the table with that case and we say to the Chinese, now you also have to make some adjustments and uh, understandings of the fact that the United States is going to be a resident power in the Asia Pacific for uh, the the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can reach a sustainable steady state in the military domain. It is not going to erase the concerns on either side, but I think it can ameliorate them in ways that are manageable and sustainable. 
Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, speaking to a wider sense of uh, allies, um, uh, it's hard to, to examine the notion of the U.S. revitalizing um, uh, its uh, alliance structures, obviously in the Pacific, but more generally, give, you know, in the immediate circumstances, and maybe this will dissipate, but I suspect not, uh, the uh, Trump administration action, uh, particularly in in Syria, it's 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 precipitous withdrawal. It would appear in Syria and its unwillingness to uh, maintain uh, its uh, support of its allies, the Kurds. I mean, how does a democratic administration deal with what has to be a significant trust question? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've been giving a lot of thought to the situation in Syria and how Mm -hmm. it actually ends up affecting our um, allies and partners in the Asia Pacific. And, And I think it cuts both ways. On the one hand, it reinforces for them that we have a current president who's deeply erratic (laughs) Uh, and can't necessarily be counted on. And I think that will be relevant to the Japanese and the South Koreans as they negotiate post-nation support and other related alliance issues. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, On the other hand, I think that our Asian allies and partners do not want the United States to, as we have done in years past, take our eye off the ball of Asia by getting too deeply sucked into the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And then you have the final complex factor, which is that Turkey is actually a NATO ally. So on the one hand, where Trump is betraying the Kurds, on the other hand, he's doing it in consultation with his NATO ally, Turkey. So there, there is a kind of odd constellation of circumstances here. I tend to think on net, this undermines our credibility in the Asia Pacific, but I don't think the picture is as clean as some made it. Um, I think what Trump has done is much worse from a moral perspective and from a strategic perspective vis-a-vis counterterrorism than specifically around China or, or Japan or Korea or anything okay. like that. Uh, <laughs> the last point I would make on this is uh, I do believe that the United States has a long-term challenge of being able to convince our partners and allies that we have the ability to maintain a consistent policy and strategy. And that is because of the the political dynamic we find ourselves in domestically. But any strategist has to think about how we manage for that uncertainty. Um, And that goes far beyond the specific issue of uh, what happened in northeastern Syria. Okay. Uh, fair enough. I want one last question with respect to that, though. And I mean, it was a it was a statement by Erdogan, the president of Turkey, that appeared to have no kind of consequence or, or reaction from Washington. But I suspect you did hear him saying that what he wants to do is acquire nuclear weapons. And kind of, I I was surprised the failure of a strong Washington reaction to that. Yeah. This is an administration that I think lets a lot of those more profound, but not necessarily immediate issues slip. Uh And I think um, that is something we should take very seriously. 
uh, and that has wider implications for the possibility of a regional arms race. And we should be very firm about our view that uh, Turkey, as a signatory to the NPT, as mm-hmm. a NATO ally, cannot go down this road. Um, and I think it is disturbing that the, tr- the Trump administration has not been forceful in its response on this issue. Well, Jake, I, w- I want to thank you for uh, taking a time out of your very busy schedule to talk to us a bit more about democratic foreign policy making, the U.S.-China rivalry. It's a pleasure to have uh, you in our virtual studio to do this. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.